This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Nothing can replace the pleasure of turning the pages of the printed book. Join us now as we explore our city's rich literary heritage, talking with people who are passionate about the printed word and celebrating the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute's fascinating local history. Welcome to Wireless Books. Welcome everyone and welcome Christine to another edition of Wireless Books. We are of course at the studios of Otago Access Radio or Otago Access Media and we are here on and behalf of the Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute which we cannot stress enough as a library in the octagon between the lovely Crake and Thistle so you can wet your whistle on your way in <laughs> down the linode corridor through the beautiful wooden and glass swinging French doors onto the smiling assess- uh, the smiling librarian <laughs> and that's you and you can wet your whistle with our wonderful array of books beautiful Mm. Now, before we start, I just want to um, mention two events which are coming up on the 16th and the 17th of September. So it's not this weekend, but the weekend after. And they're at Marimah Hall <gasps> and they're celebrating... Catherine Mansfield's yes, centenary. Yes, it's 100 years since her um, untimely death, mm. tragic death. And... So the first one is called Catch 23 and it's on, I think it's a Saturday, Saturday the the 16th and it's on in the evening and it's free admission so you don't need to book and it is um, a multimedia presentation with a pianist, Sherry Grant, playing to to the media, um, I guess it's um, video or, or photographs. Mm. And then the next day at 2pm um, is, this is actually ticketed and it's costs $25 for adults and $20 for students. And you can book tickets or there'll be door sales with cash or FPOS payment available. And this one has mezzo-soprano Teray. Therese Roma. Sorry, I can't read my writing. It has a mezzo-soprano. Yeah, sorry, did I mispronounce that? <laughs> um, T- Teresa Romano with um, with um, the pianist again, Shirley, Sherry Grant. And they're doing performances of songs by various um, writers. Um, there's Janet Jennings, David Hamilton, Anthony Ritchie, Kenneth Young, Michael Norris and others. So that should be very interesting and exciting as well. And um, if you go onto the University and Performing Arts website, they, they'll give, that will give you the links. Mm. I th- I'm sure too I saw on Facebook that there, um, one of them was an online event as well. Mm. Or is that separate? I'm not certain. We were just asked by the head of the Performing Arts School to, if we would publicise it. And and I thought, well, yes, why not? It sounds pretty great. And, you know, even, you know, if you go along in the evening of the Saturday, I mean, that's, that's free admission. I mean, that's, you can't get a better price than that. And it should be pretty good, I would say. Now, shall we discover a few books that we have? 
I have here Anan Cleves. Now, this is part of the Shetland series, and for whatever reason, we, do, we don't have all the Shetland novels. I think we have all the Vera novels, but we've got gaps in our Shetland collection, so I've, I snapped this up, and it's called Dead Water, and it's about a journalist who was grew up in Shetland, but he left Shetland pretty quickly to make his um, fortune in London, and now he's back in Shetland um, investigating a big story, and um, he is murdered. Ooh. Of course. Yes, and um, it all kicks off from there. Oh, I'll take that. Oh, sorry, when you finish, sorry. <laughs> Been a bit presumptuous, sorry. Yes, well, I don't think there's very much more to say, really. Um, I think it's probably been made into a television series, and it's the fifth Shetland novel, and no doubt it will be great. Now, I have a New Zealand... Well, actually, got two New Zealand authors. This one is Carl Nixon, and it's called The Waters. It just was issued... Um, just released last month and Carl Nixon his last novel was called The Tally Stick and this one he's back with family relationships and the waters are a family so it's not oh okay it's not a resort or anything so it's the water family and they covers them over 40 years so back in 1979 their father sold the farm and invested all the family's money in a dune property development next to the ocean in Christchurch so I guess the waters is a double meaning because they are the water family and they yeah. are now living next to the to the ocean and so and that's when everything starts going wrong there's um, three children there's Practical athletic Mark, who's the oldest, and he he really looks out for his siblings because once the father sold the farm, the mother kind of tunes out because um, things are going wrong and she just sort of zones out. So, and so the next is um, physically beautiful dreamer Davy and the baby of the family, Samantha. And I think actually Samantha is actually the mother might have been pregnant with Samantha when the farm got sold so this is a depressed woman pregnant mm. woman and, and two little boys and the oldest boys trying to hold everything together and um, so it's it's not good but um, life goes on as they say in the movies yes Oh, she's, she's looking doubtful. I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Now, the next one I've got is the latest by Emily Perkins. The line, no, it's just called Linus. It's not the the. Now, Emily Perkins, she, her last book, um, which I can't remember the name of now, but it was issued quite, um, uh, The Forests. And that came out a good five years ago. And Emily's sort of been taking a bit of, she, she was working at the University of Auckland in the writers' um, development department, or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> department of literature. I think. <laughs> so anyway, her, her, she was working, help, you know, working with young writers, um, and so it sort of just ate up her time to actually write for herself. Although she did do write a play 
which apparently is easier. <laughs> so I still fantasy that, <laughs> if they say so. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe she found it easier yeah. or less time consuming. But anyway, she she resigned from that position, although she loved it, simply so that she could return to doing her own work. And this is the fruit of her labours. Linus is about a woman who. I think she's sort of probably a, comes from a working class background, and she's married a wealthy property developer, and and he sort of remade her into a much more socially acceptable person. Like her her name her name is her, Therese, but it's not actually her real name. It's the name that he sort of said, "Oh well, you should call yourself Therese." It's more classy than whatever mm. her first name was, and so she. She own, has this um, swanky shop selling designer knickknacks, and she's so she's one of these women who wafts around being gl- glamorous and stuff, and she leads supposedly the perfect life, but it's all starting to unravel. Um, she, I think, she's the second wife, and there's children from the first marriage, and they've never really accepted her. And her husband's property development is starting to be mired in um, bribery, bribery allegations, and things are just starting to unravel. And so, Therese is sort of working out if, if the life she's she's made for herself, or has had made for her, is really the life she wants. And she starts to be fascinated because she lives in a very glamorous apartment and the woman who lives below her starts to fascinate her. This um, neighbour, Claire, believes she's discovered the secret to living with freedom and authenticity and freeing herself from the mundanity of domesticity. And so, of course, all these wealthy people want to live authentic lives. So I think when, you know, us poor people, we, we don't worry about our lives being authentic. We're just worried about get, getting through the day and paying the bills and, you know, and oh. keeping hold of our, of our houses. Oh, it's true what they say, isn't it? How the other half lives. Yes. Eh? So yeah. there you go. And finally, I have the latest book by David Garn. Um, the Wagner, a tale of shipwreck, mutiny, and murder. Sorry, isn't it called the Wager? Sorry, the Wager. Yes, you're right. And he wrote the Killers of the Flower Moon. He's he's actually oh, and the Lost great. City of yeah. C oh. of Z. Well, he would have called it Z because he's an American. Yeah. yeah. And this is a story of it's a ship in His Majesty's navy and on the 28th of January in 1742 a ramshackle vessel of patched together wood and cloth washed up on the coast of Brazil inside were 30 emaciated men barely alive and they had an extraordinary tale to tell they were the survivors of His Majesty's ship the Wagner the the wager, which had left England two years earlier on a secret mission during an imperial war with Spain. It had been wrecked on a desolate island off the coast of Patagonia. The men, after being marooned for months, built the flimsy craft and sailed for more than 100 days, traversing nearly 3,000 miles of storm-wrecked seas, and they were greeted as heroes. However, six months later, another, even more decrepit aircraft landed on the coast of Chile. This boat contained just three castaways, and they told a very different story. 
The 30 sailors who had landed in Brazil were not heroes, they were mutineers. As accusations of treachery and murder flew, the Admiralty convened a court-martial to determine who was telling the truth. The stakes were life and death, for whoever the court found guilty would hang. Now, yeah, this actually, I I haven't read it all. I just opened it up and started reading, and it already came up with stuff that I had no idea about. And 1942, sorry, 1742 is during the reign of George II. That's how far back it was. And of course, we know about the heroics of Cook and we know about Ernest Shackleton and how he saved his people and, and the amazing journey he made. And we know about the amazing navigational feats of um, Captain Bly from the Mutiny of the Mm. Bounty. But these people, this story predates all of that. And they've just been forgotten. So is this actually... Yeah, this is true. Oh, is it? Because he he always writes stories about, of of truth to events. And, yeah, it's... It is. It's quite fascinating. I think I'll try. Now, this is a real departure for me, but there probably will be a murder in this. So I will try. Yes, there are murders. No, this will be... um, No, this will be very interesting. I'll be very happy to take this. Thank you. Now... I think we should have a, a little break while I, I compose myself. Oh, do be with. For more information on the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, go to www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz. That's Dunedin, A T H E N A E U M.org.nz. I hope you're suitably composed. Well, hopefully. Now, I have been reading this amazing book, and it's called George V, Never a Dull Moment, and it's by Jane Ridley. And George V and Queen Mary. So I'm, I think I'm quite obsessed by Queen Mary. I think you are. I've, yeah. Yeah. But this is – I have actually read another um, biography of – of George III and it was very interesting although he's sort of a dull person he he lived through a lot of and he was the king during the First World War so anyway Jane Ridley I think takes more of a female attitude towards it so she she covers all the politics and everything but she also has a whole lot of, of the details that I find irresistible in history and so I'm just going to read snippets of it for a long time, but I'm not going to give you totally George V. Ev- I'm only going to have a small bit of George V for every episode, not have a great big wobble, wallop of him. So we're going to start <laughs> off with the... You wallop away. Mm, the Cullerman Diamond at one pound six ounces was the largest diamond ever found, and it was presented to Edward VII on 1907 by the Transvaal government... South Africa now, and it was cut into three stones. Cullerman one and two became the stars of Africa and part of the crown jewels. Cullerman three was a 94.8 carat diamond, and what was left, six large brilliants and 96 smaller diamonds known as Granny's Chips. Now I've got a a picture of Queen Mary from the book about finding Mm. Queen Mary, and she's wearing this diamond um, 
necklace at the bottom, which is called Granny's Chips. And they're big, chilly chips. They are massive. And they actually are still being worn by the royal family to this day. In fact, um, Queen Camilla wore them to her coronation. And I've got pictures from... That's handy for radio. Yes, well, I'm just to show just to show you yourself. I've got a pit, there's a picture there of of the Queen Mother as um, Queen Elizabeth when she was, and she's she's wearing them. They're, I mean, they, they are and massive. I, they're stunningly beautiful, but they, they are by no means chips. I mean, they're huge. Well, it's, they? a, it's sort of a joke. Oh. Um, yeah, and so and they and they were also the smaller diamonds were known as Granny's Chips, right? And the diamond brooches were so heavy that Mary needed to have her gowns reinforced with buckram. So... Wow. And I'm just going to talk about the jewels she wore on her coronation because it's quite fascinating. She On her coronation, she wore these jewels, a collar formed of rows of diamonds with a large row under... And a diamond cockade arranged with drops to form a stomacher with four diamond bow brooches under the pearl drops and South African pendant brooches on the sleeves of the gown. The diamond bracelets with blue emerald clasps with VA and diamonds on clasps. A stomacher is a triangular panel that fits the front opening of a woman's gown. Well, it's actually um, three brooches that are in descending order, and they're sort of stuck. They start from your your breast, and they go down to your stomach. And if you go into Google and Google stomacher or or coronation, you'll hit they, they've got lots of images of different stomachers, and. There's a coronation picture of Queen Alexander where you can see her jewels quite clearly. And the jewel, the the diamond cockade, which was originally a class for a cloak, and it was altered by Queen Alexander to form a very large brooch, which she wore at her coronation and also Queen Mary wore. And there's a very good picture of Queen Alexander and you can see this enormous brooch and it will come up with different pictures of it and you can see it really is the class and it's probably about the size of a mobile phone it's it's a real wicked massive thing and you can see there's two two um arms and a a circular thing which held it together it must have looked amazing on on a cloak when it was when it was made and queen alexander her gown although it's very sumptuous is sort of is a block colour, so you can see her jewellery much more clearly. But Queen Mary, because she sponsored um, embroiderers' guilds and um, destitute women doing embroidery, so her gown is highly embroidered. So it's very difficult to see the amazing jewellery she was wearing. It must have shown up much more in person, but with in black and white pictures, you really can't see it. And there's a photo, not a photograph, there's a painting done of the king's of the coronation and she's there but it just you can't see the detail of it and it's it's a bit unfortunate it's um those tags oh. yeah so there's a there's a picture of it and there she, there she is but you really can't see it because the embroidery um kind of obscures it but it's quite fascinating and i also brought another prop because the 
the Cullinan um, diamond, when it was found, it was so huge that it was actually tossed aside because they thought it was a piece of crystal. They just didn't believe that a diamond would be that large. Mm-hmm. And if you go on Google it, there's a picture of one of the the mine owner holding it, and he's he's got his hand with his his thumb down and his fingers up so it forms an L shape and he's got the the diamond sitting on his thumb before it's cut and it, I brought in um, a New Testament Psalms and Proverbs book you know just a handhold thing and it's about that size maybe a bit taller but um, yeah Massive. imagine that as a, dime, mm, no, a diamond I can't yeah well no and um, the, yeah, the people who found it couldn't imagine it was a diamond they said they thought it was a crystal so that's and of course you know that's what you did you found something enormous and then and you valuable. gave it away you, you gave it to the royal family because <laughs> that's that's what you do that's how the other half live hmm. now this is um, something else I found um, on on my internet searches a totally totally different this is a letter from Clyde Barrow of Bonnie and Clyde fame to Harry Henry Ford in 1934 and it goes while I still have got breath in my lungs I will tell you what a dandy car you made (laughs) I have drove Fords exclusively when I can get away with one (laughs) for sustained speed and freedom from trouble the Ford has got got ever over ever other car skinned and even if my business hasn't been strictly legal, it don't hurt anything to tell you what a fine car you got in the V8. Now, uh, my husband pra- would, uh, my husband now would be echoing those Sentence. words about what a fine car you've got in the V8. Even now, <laughs> Let me, some things never change. Okay, and it's and yeah. Ford's V8 is one of them. Yes, and it's, it's lovely to know that he was um, so enamoured of the brand that he yeah, I, to only write. tried to, yes. st- to steal Ford's. <laughs> <laughs> but to write to Henry Ford and say how plum pleased he was with them. <laughs> I thought that would tickle your fancy, so I took a note of it. And finally, I just want to talk about um, Catherine Dior, who was the sister of Christian Dior, the famous couture. And he was one of five children, and she was his younger sister. And during the Second World War, she became a member of the French Resistance. And um, she was part of a Franco-Polish intelligence unit, um, F2, from from November the 14th. And she was arrested in Paris on July 1944, which was quite late in the war, by the Gestapo. And she was tortured but didn't break. And... Her brother had contacts because he was working um, as making dresses during the war, and so he had contacts with German officers. And he tried tried to get her released, but it didn't work. Mm. But um, she was sent to um, a woman's concentration camp in North Germany, then to a military prison, and then a factory near Leipzig. Um, and she was released in April 1945. And when she arrived back in Paris, her her brother was there to meet her, and he'd he'd organised for a, a lovely meal for her when she got mm. back. And just, well, originally he didn't recognise her when she arrived, mm. and she was so emaciated and so ill that she 
cook, she couldn't eat any no. of the lovely delicacies he'd arranged for, to, you know, to celebrate her release. But anyway, she then went off and became a flower grower, and she developed that into an interest in perfume. And she she became a director at Christian Dior, and she was very. Um, it's it's claimed that he named Miss Dior after her oh. because um, they were they were doing they developed this this fragrance and they were trying to work out what to call it and she came into the room and he said ah Miss Dior that's uh. it this is the the perfume for Miss Dior and that's how it got it. I actually quite oh. it's a lovely perfume and she was um, given the um, the well, she was given a lot of honours, yeah. and she, um, the King's Medal for Courage in the Cause of Freedom, the Legion of Honour, and yeah. So she spent the rest of her life working with flowers and various. Um, and then when he died, she um, was very interested in um, keeping his uh, memory alive. And so, you know, oh, and. Um, lovely. So she's a sort of a forgotten figure, and um, somebody um, wrote a biography of her about two years ago, and it's sort of come back and she her her. I'll wait for the movie. Well, it probably will be mm-hmm. made, and uh, Marion, um, the woman who plays Chanel, Marion uh, Corlette or something like that, <laughs> uh, probably quite different. <laughs> anyway, I, I can imagine her playing the role. <laughs> Oh no, fascinating! I'd never heard of uh, yeah. his younger uh, sister. It's just um, yeah. yeah, fascinating. All those people out there who have done Amazing, extraordinary, yes. brave things, and you know, we hear of a, a few of them, but sadly, not most of them. Well. Yeah, there's just so many amazing people out there. Just like you. And on that note... (laughs) I'd crack under torture, I know. (laughs) Oh, gosh, yeah. Just withhold a book that you love, you know, and it'll be it. No, it's fine. I'll tell you everything. (laughs) They're there, (laughs) hiding in the cellar. (laughs) Until next time, everyone. Happy reading. Happy reading. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute welcomes new members. Enjoy the Athenaeum's quiet, warmly carpeted library and reading room and share in the joy of books, new and old. Visit www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz for more information or pop into the Athenaeum Library at number 24, The Octagon. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, celebrating Dunedin's rich literary heritage since 1851. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.